If I had a heart, I could love you. If I had a voice, I would sing. After the night, when I wake up, I'll see what tomorrow brings. More, give me more, give me more. If I had a voice, I would sing. Alright, so hello, welcome to another episode. Um, if you didn't recognize the song, that is the theme tune to the fantastic uh, series that ended a few years ago called Vikings. So yeah, you've seen the title of this um, um, episode. I don't know what it is right now, but I'm sure it's it says something about Scandinavian mythology. So the other day when I was thinking, what song could I possibly sing at the start of this? Um, that was the first one that came to my mind. And I was like, yeah, I'm happy with that one. That'll do. Um, so as I normally do, I explain the kind of reason why I thought of doing this episode. And um, so recently I have been um, yeah, reading Ralph Waldo Emerson again. And then I read the Henry David Thoreau again. He was Emerson's friend. And then I, re I remembered another book that I read um, around the time that I was reading Emerson first as well, like a long time ago now, like nine years ago when I was living in Ireland. And um, one of Emerson's books is, um, which I read, is is a collection of lectures that he gave and um, the book, the, the lectures were all about, um, the book was called Re On Representative Men. And it was all about like, you know, the giants like Plato and Dante and Shakespeare. And um, he picked out these as like representatives of not only, yeah, of their times and of like humanity. Um, and I was reminded that around that time when I read the Emerson book, there was another book which was very similar to that one that I read. Um, and coincidentally, it was by a contemporary of Emerson. Um, and his name is Thomas Carlyle. Um, and he wrote the lecture that I'm going to read from in this episode. Um, so, yeah, he was from Scotland. Um, he was a writer and uh, a novelist as well. And this book of lectures that he that he wrote, it's... It's very similar to what Emerson did, talking about, you know, these giants. And um, but Carlyle's series is called On Heroes, Hero Worship and the Heroic in History. Um, so, yeah, um, I, I, won't, I don't need to say too much about Thomas Carlyle. Um, I could, you know, <laughs> you could do an episode on any one of these people that I mentioned, um, but I just want to kind of get into his um, lecture here. Um, I was thinking as well, I'm not going to complete this whole um, lecture because I think it's 20 pages long. That would probably end up being like three hours if I'm going to be talking about some sentences as well. 
So what I'm going to do is probably just talk for about an hour um, and then just kind of leave it at that. And if you really liked what you heard, I totally go, I totally recommend that you should go ahead and get this book because I've read all the lectures in it, you know, like nine years ago and they were just like really brilliant. He's a, he's a really cool writer. Um, so yeah, I just want to give a taste, give it a large, um, to read out a large section of, of this. For me, this essay was brilliant when I read it. First of all, I have, it's covered in my own notes here. Um, so yeah, um, this, so that's why I'm thinking of this, um, of this episode, because I w remembered this other book that I read around the same time as Emerson and I really loved it. And I was watching the Vikings series that I think it was a winter time. I think it was around winter time when I, when I, when I read this lecture series all about Scandinavian mythology, uh, um, so yeah, it's December now again. It's this, it's similar kind of weather here in Belgium to how it was in Ireland. So um, yeah, I was reminded of it because of because of that. Um, unfortunately for me, I've actually started recording this episode. This is the third or fourth time now that I've been trying to do this episode. Like yesterday, I was reading it, and then my throat was kind of really dry and tickly, and. Yeah, I had to stop it twice. And now again, this evening, something else happened. But I think we're, we're fine now for, for this uh, attempt. But the first page and a half of the lecture series is basically him talking about the lecture series and the subject of great men throughout history. So I've read that now a few times. Um, and maybe I'll just re point out... Um, yeah, there's just one line here. So at the start, he says, like, we have undertaken to discourse here for a little on great men, blah, 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 blah. And then he says, um, where does the sentence start? They were the leaders of men, these great ones, the modelers, patterns, and in a wide sense, creators of whatsoever the general mass of men contrived to do or to attain. All things that we see standing accomplished in the world are properly the outward material results, the practical realization and embodiment of thoughts that dwelt in the great men sent into the world. Um, and when I read that, I was just reminded of um, the Emerson, um, one of Emerson's essays where he said exactly the same thing. <laughs> and when I read this first the other day or again the other day, I was thinking, who? I wonder who said it first, because the date here is 1840 uh, for this lecture series. So I wonder, did, um, yeah, just, yeah, they're, they're both saying the exact same thing. Like um, Emerson put it like, um, he said, something like Christianity, for example, is the shadow of Jesus, let's say, and Islam is the shadow of Muhammad. And then I'm just thinking more contemporary times, something like um Apple is the shadow of, of Bill or Bill um, of, um, oh my God, what's he called? Um, <clears throat> oh no, now I can't remember his name. The guy who, who invented the Apple stuff. Oh no. His name is just completely gone for me. You know who I'm talking about. I don't need to look it up. Oh, that's so annoying. Inventor, Steve Jobs. There we go. I don't need to look it up. Yeah. So for example, Steve Jobs came along. Now we have all this certain kind of technologies. Um, so anyway, yeah, I'm just, I was just struck when I read this the other day of how they're basically saying the same thing. One sec. 
Oh, I hope my throat's gonna be okay. Um, yeah, okay. So I'll just read an another little bit from his intro, um, and then I'll skip ahead to when he actually starts about the Scandinavian mythology. This is a nice sentence here. One comfort is that great men taken up in any way are profitable company. We cannot look, however imperfectly, upon a great man without gaining something by him. He is the living light fountain, which it, which it is good and pleasant to be near. The light which enlightens, which has enlightened the darkness of, of the world. And this not as a kindled lamp only, but rather as a natural luminary shining by the gift of heaven. A flowing light fountain, as I say, of native original insight, of manhood and heroic nobleness, in whose radiance all souls feel that it is well with them. thought that was a nice sentence. Um... Yeah, and then I'll just skip on to where he actually gets into... There's only like about a page here of him kind of... Um, I'll just skip ahead to where he gets into the Scandinavian mythology. So here we go. There's about half a quarter of a page I'm going to read here. And then after that, I haven't read this, what, I, what, what I'm going to read after that since like nine years ago. So it's going to be all like fresh to me as well. So surely it seems a very strange looking thing, this paganism almost inconceivable to us in these days, a bewildering, inextricable jungle of delusions, confusions, falsehoods and absurdities covering the whole field of life, a thing that fills us with astonishment, almost, if it were possible, with incredulity, for truly it is not easy to understand that sane men could ever calmly, with their eyes open, believe and live by such a set of doctrines. <laughs> so he's kind of mocking the whole paganism and all their gods and stuff. Yet he's going to talk about it for a whole lecture. Um, that, that men should have worshipped their poor fellow man as a god, and not him only, but stocks and stones and all manner of animate and inanimate objects, and fashioned for themselves such a distracted chaos of hallucinations by way of theory of the universe. All this looks like an incredible fable. Um, so yeah, here he's talking about the animism of paganism, like um, different, um, you know, people around the world, like, you know, a long time ago, they... You know, they worshipped rivers and they worshipped mountains and all these. They they worshipped, like he's saying here, um, inanimate things. Um, that's referred. That's called animism. Um, and actually, I was just reading a book um, a few months ago, and it was about the switch from animism to humanism. And like when a monotheistic religion like uh, Judaism and Christianity come into the world, there's a kind of a separation of man from, let's say, the animal kingdom and man kind of puts himself above the animal kingdom. And like it says in the Bible, like, you know, in terms of food, for example, like all these things are for you and you may eat them and all this kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, with um, the advent of humanism, humans kind of, uh, yeah, they kind of put themselves above... Um, everything else um and obviously that has not been so good for the for the planet in um 
in many ways. But um, yeah, so that's just uh, animism. And then we shifted into humanism. Um, <laughs> I, I won't go into the book that I got this from. I might do an actual episode on it. I'll just leave it at that. Anyway, so um, where was I? Um such hideous, inextricable jungle of misworships, misbeliefs, men made as we are, did actually hold by and live at home in. So, yeah, he's just kind of saying he cannot believe that people actually believed all this. <laughs> but uh, let's get into it. Um, this is strange. Yes, we may pause in sorrow and silence over the depths of darkness that are in man if we rejoice in the heights of purer vision he has, a, has attained to now. Such things were and are in man, in all men, in us too. Kind of talking about the primitivism. Um, some speculators have a short way of accounting for the pagan religion. Mere quackery. Quackery, it's a good word. <laughs> that's uh, For me, that's a real medieval uh word it's like back then when like uh maybe medicine wasn't so scientific um if people didn't believe that a doctor was actually going to be curing something by whatever he was doing <laughs> um they would have called him a quack um anyway mere quackery priestcraft and priestcraft and dupery uh like fooling someone say they no sane man ever did be believe it, merely contrive to persuade other men not worthy of the name of saying to believe it. It will be often our duty to protest against this, this sort of hypotheses about men's doing doings and history, and I here on the very threshold protest against it in reference to paganism. Okay, so he's saying he's going to like, yeah, he thinks it's all foolish or something. Um, and to all other isms by which man has ever for a length of time striven to walk in this world. Hmm. He's against the isms. Maybe he thinks they're just uh, too temporary. They have all had a truth in them, or men would not have taken them up. Wait a second. On the very threshold, wait. Um, and I hear on the very threshold, protest against it. It will be often our duty to protest against this sort of hypotheses about men's doings and history. And I here, on the very threshold, protest against it in reference to paganism. Okay. They have all had a truth in them, or men would not have taken them up in the first place. Quackery and dupery do abound in religions, above all in the more advanced decaying stages of religions, they have fearfully they have fearfully abounded. But quackery was never the originating influence in such things. It was not the health and life of such things. So he's kind of saying that like, yeah, these things, paganism, for example, it had some quackery and silly, silly ideas, but he's getting at, but they did come from something that was maybe like uh, truthful or had a, quite a lot of meaning in it. So he's saying there was a lot of maybe silly things that grew out of this one kind of original insight or something like this. Um, but but this is the point he's making. There seems to have been actually something worthwhile about it 
from which everything else grew out of. <clears throat> um, but quackery was never the originating influence in such things. It was not the health and life of such things, but their disease, this, this, the sure precursor of their being about to die. Let us never forget this. It seems to me a most mournful hypothesis that that of quackery giving birth to any faith even in savage men. Quackery gives birth to nothing, gives death to all. We shall not see into the true heart of anything if we look merely at the quackeries of it. If we do not reject the quackeries altogether as mere diseases, corruptions, with which our and all men's sole duty is to have done with them, to get rid of them, to sweep them out of our thoughts as out of our practice, Man everywhere is the born enemy of lies. Yup. I find grand lamaism, I don't know what that is. I find grand lamaism um, itself to have a kind of truth in it. Read the candid, clear sighted, rather skeptical Mr. Turner's account of his embassy to, to that country. Lama. I wonder is he Dalai Lama? Maybe it's something in relation to Buddhism. Um, so he's saying, check out some book called Account of His Embassy to That Country and See. They have their belief, these poor oh yeah, Tibet people. So yeah, it's something about uh, Buddhism. They have their belief, these poor Tibet, doesn't say Tibetan, he says Tibet, Tibet people, that providence sends down always an incarnation of himself in with a capital h into every generation hmm. provident they they have their belief that providence sends down always an incarnation of himself <laughs> like a jesus in every every uh, or a buddha in every generation into every generation at bottom some people in a kind of pope at bottom, some at bottom, some people, some belief in a kind of pope. At bottom, still better, belief that there is a greatest man. Ooh, I see. This is relevant to his lecture series. That he is discoverable. That once discovered, we ought to treat him with an obedience which knows no bounds. Hmm. That is the truth of Grand Lamaism. The discoverability is the only error here. The I'm going to say Tibetan priest because he says Tibet. <laughs> the Tibetan priests have methods of their own of discovering what man is greatest, fit to be the fit to be supreme over them. Oh, maybe this is something. Yeah, maybe this is how they decide on their Dalai Lama. Did I say that right? Um, bad methods, but are they so much worse than our methods of understanding him to be always the eldest born of a certain genealogy? Alas, it is a difficult thing to find good methods for. We shall begin to have a chance of understanding paganism when we first admit that that to its followers it was at um, at one time earnestly true. Let us consider 
it very certain that men did believe in paganism, men with open eyes, sound senses, men made altogether like ourselves, that we, had we been there, should have believed in it. Ask now what paganism could have been. Another theory, somewhat more respectable, attributes such things to allegory. It was a play of poetic minds, say these theorists, a shadowing fort in allegorical fable, in personification and visual form, of what such poetic minds had known and felt of this universe, which agrees, add they, with a primary law of human nature. Still, everywhere observab observably, ob <laughs> observably, at work, though in less important things, that what a man feels intensely, he struggles to speak out of him, to see represented before him in visual shape. And as if we, as if with a kind of life and historical reality in it. Now, doubtless there is such a law, and it is one of the deepest in human nature. Neither need we doubt that it did operate fundamentally in this business. The hypotheses which ascribes paganism wholly or mostly to this agency, I call a little more respectable. But I cannot yet call it the true hypotheses. He likes this word, hypotheses, Hypo hypothesis. Think we, think would we believe, think, would we believe and take with us as our life guidance an allegory, a poetic sport, not sport, but earnest is what we should require. It is a most earnest thing to be alive in this world. To die is not sport for a man. Man's life never was a sport to him. It was a stern reality, altogether a serious matter to be alive, indeed. I find, therefore, that though these allegory theorists are on the way towards truth in this matter, they have not reached it either. Pagan religion is indeed an allegory, a symbol of what men felt and knew about the universe, and all religions are symbols of that, altering always as that alters. But it seems to me a radical perversion of even or even, seems to me a radical perversion and even inversion of, of the business to put that forward as the origin and moving cause when it was rather the result and termination. To get beautiful allegories, a perfect poetic symbol was not the want of men. I'm just going to get a, like a pen or something here. Oh, I'll get a, a bookmarker. Because the text is quite small to read it. Um, to get beautiful allegories, a perfect poetic symbol was not the want of men, but to know what they were to believe about the universe, what course they were to steer in it. Ah, screw it. What, what in this mysterious life of theirs they had to hope and to fear to, to do and to forbear doing. The Pilgrim's Progress, which is a book, is an allegory and a beautiful, just and serious one. But consider whether Bunyan, that's the guy who wrote it, Bunyan's allegory could have pre uh, preceded the faith it symbolized. Yeah, 
it couldn't have. Um, the allegory grew out of the fate. I think he's getting at there must have been some fate and then all these pagan or Scandinavian myths grew out of it. Low battery there. Um, the fate had to be already there, standing, believed by everybody, of which the allegory could then become a shadow. And with all its seriousness, we may say a sportful shadow, a mere play of the fancy in comparison with that awful fact and scientific certainty which it poetically strives to emblem. The allegory is the product of the certainty, not the producer of it. Yeah, Not in Bunyan's nor in any other case. For paganism, therefore, we have still to inquire. For paganism, therefore, we have still to inquire whence came that scientific certainty, the parent of such a bewildered heap of allegories, errors and confusions. How was it? What was it? All right. So I guess this is what the whole lecture is going to be about then. So he's saying, yes, some of these um, myths about the Scandinavian gods, they're maybe very silly and very unbelievable to us, but they came from some original kind of insight or some kind of uh, truth or, yeah, some kind of um, wisdom. And then maybe they got uh, a bit exaggerated in the storytelling over the centuries or something like that. Different people maybe added on different things. <clears throat> All right. So he's he wants to really get down to the kind of core of um, the Scandinavian mythology here. Surely it were a foolish attempt to pretend explaining in this place or in any place such a phenomenon as that far distant, distracted, cloudy, hmm, what's this word, imbroglio of paganism, um, more like a cloud field than a distant continent of firm land and facts. It is no longer a reality, yet it was one. We ought to understand that this seeming cloud field was once a reality, that not poetic allegory, least of all that dupery and deception, was the origin of it. Men, I say, never did believe idle songs, never risked their soul's life on allegories. Men in all times, especially in earlier earnest times, have had an instinct for detecting quacks, <laughs> for detesting quacks. <laughs> Let us try if, um, leaving out both the quack theory and the allegory one, and listening with affectionate attention to that far-off confused rumor of the pagan ages, we cannot ascertain so much as this, at least that there was a kind of fact at the heart of them. He has a strange use of capitalization. Um, like he's putting words in capitals, like that there was in a capitalization, and it was after a comma. Uh, like, I mean, that's, to us, that's um, grammatically, um, punctuation-wise wrong. Anyway, just noticing that. Um that there was a kind of fact at the heart of them, 
that they too were not mendacious and distracted, but in their own proper way, true and sane. All right, okay, let's let's see it. So, <laughs> you remember that fallacy of Plato's uh, of a man who had grown to maturity in some dark distance um, and was brought on a sudden into the upper air to see the sunrise. I think this is Plato's allegory of the cave he's referring to. What would his wonder be, his rapt astonishment at the sight we daily witness with indifference? Mm. Um, I'm just reminded in just reading that. I think it was in the in the episode about the the poet that I read from Emerson. Um, <laughs> Like, in a way, the job of the poet is to do exactly that. It's to kind of like, as Samuel Taylor Coleridge said, I think it was mentioned. Was it mentioned? No, I don't think it was mentioned in that essay, but I just, uh, I was reminded of it and I said it in relation to that ep essay. One sec, throat. <clears throat> yeah, as Coleridge said, it's the poet's job or the artist's job to... Um, remove the veil of familiarity from people's perception of things in the world. Um, like that's why, you know, poetry is always trying to find new ways of saying things or new connections. So you look at something and then you have a different way of looking at it. Um, so yeah, I'm just reminded of that, um, just from that sentence. And and there was a, in that same episode, I, I said, I had before I saw before I recorded that episode, I had seen on scrolling on Instagram, there was this poor chimpanzee that had spent its whole life in indoors um, because it was like, I don't know, been tested on or something like this. And then in the video, you see this chimpanzee going outside for the first time and you can see his face looking at the sky and he's like, oh, my God. So many chimp videos or monkey videos. <laughs> The expressions on their faces, um, it's, you can really see <laughs> how we are like, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of um, similarity going on there. Anyway, um, what would his wonder be? This person, so he's taking Plato's analogy. What would his wonder be, his rapt astonishment at the sight we daily witness with indifference? That's the veil of familiarity. With the free, open sense of a child, yet with the ripe faculty of a man. Okay. Okay. Um, his whole heart would be kindled by that sight. He would discern it well to be godlike. His soul would fall down in worship before it. <laughs> yeah. Now, just such a childlike greatness was in the primitive nations. The first pagan thinker among rude men, meaning like primitive, the first man that began to think was precisely this child man of Plato's. Simple, open as a child, yet with the depth and strength of a man in terms of his ability to describe Wow. Nature had as yet no name to him. He had not yet united under a name uh, the infinite variety. One sec. 
he had not yet united under a name the infinite variety of sights, sounds, shapes, and motions, which we now collectively name universe, nature, or the like, and so with a name dismiss it from us. Oh, yeah. When you put, yeah, with a name dismiss it from us. That's interesting. <clears throat> the word makes it comprehensible and then more what it becomes duller to us or something um, to the wild deep hearted man as we uh, as <laughs> to the wild deep hearted man all was yet was still new not veiled i use the word veil like coleridge's thing not veiled under names or formulas it stood naked flashing in on him there beautiful awful unspeakable awful as in like wowful <laughs> nature was to this man what the what to the thinker and prophet it it forever is preternatural this green flowery rock-built earth the trees the mountains rivers many sounding seas that great deep sea of azure that swims overhead the sky the winds sweeping through it the black cloud fashioning itself together now pouring out fire now hail and rain what is it i what at bottom, we do not yet know. We can never know at all. It is not by our superior insight that we escape the difficulty. It is by our superior levity, our inattention, our want of insight. It is by not thinking that we cease to wonder at it. Hardened round us, encasing wholly every notion we form, Hardened round us, encasing wholly every notion we form, is a wrappage of traditions, hearsays, mere words. Mm. We call that fire of the black thundercloud electricity and lecture learnedly about it and grind the like out and grind the like of it out of glass and silk. But what is it? What made it? Whence comes it? Whence? Like, where does it come from? Whither it? Whither goes it? <laughs> where does it go? Whither and whence? Science has done much for us, but it is a poor science that would hide from us the great, deep, sacred infinitude of... Hmm, this is a weird word. Knee science... Never saw that word before. It's like science with N-E in front of it. Knee science. Whither we can never penetrate. On which all science swims as a mere superficial film. This world, after all, after, after this world, after all our science and sciences, is still a miracle. Wonderful, inscrutable, magical, and more to whosoever will think of it. Nice. That great mystery of time, where there are no other, the illimitable, silent, never-resting thing called time, rolling, rushing on, swift, silent, like an all-embracing ocean tide, on which we and all the universe swim like exhalations, like apparitions which are, and then, 
are not. This is forever very literally, this is forever very literally a miracle, a thing to strike us dumb, for we have no word to speak about it. This universe, ah, me, what could the wild man know of it? What can we yet know? This, that it is a force and thousandfold complexity of forces, a force which is not we. That is all. It is not we. It is altogether different from us. Force. Force everywhere. Force. Hmm. Force of nature. We ourselves a mysterious force in the center of that. There is not a leaf rotting on the highway, but has force in it. How else could it rot? Nay, surely to the atheistic thinker, if such a one were possible, it must be a miracle too, this huge illimitable whirlwind of force. I think what he's just, what he's saying when he's saying the word force, yeah, life force, which envelops us here, never resisting, never resting whirlwind, high as immensity, old as eternity. What is it? God's creation? God's creation, the religious people answer. What is it? God's creation, the religious people answer. It is the almighty God's <clears throat> force. Atheistic science babbles poorly of it with scientific nomenclature, um, experiments and whatnot, as if it were a poor dead thing. Mm. To be bottled up in laden jars and sold over counters. Hmm. Um, but the natural sense of man in all times, if he will honestly apply his sense, proclaims it to be a living thing. Nature. Ah, an unspeakable, godlike thing towards which the best attitude for us after never so much science is awe. Devout prostration, meaning like humbleness, and humility of soul. Worship, if not in words, then in silence. But now I remark farther, what in such a time as ours it requires, what in such a time as ours it requires a prophet or poet to teach us, namely the stripping off of those poor undevout rapages, nomenclatures and scientific hearsays, this the ancient earnest soul as yet unencumbered with these things did for itself. I'm just thinking, when was Samuel Taylor Coleridge? Was he before or after this guy? Because what this guy is saying is totally what um, Coleridge said very succinctly. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, poet, critic and thinker, was born in Devon in 1772 and died in 1834. So he died. That's from a book cover that I have on Coleridge here. So he died six years before this lecture was. Um, so I wonder, Coleridge was maybe um, an influence on on this guy's thinking. And, and like he's saying here, it's the poets who, uh, what did he say? The poet teaches us, namely, the stripping off the, unv to uh, what did I say? Removing the veil of familiarity. Yeah, that's what this... That's what um, Carlyle is talking about here. Um, 
Okay, so Coleridge was maybe an influence. Um, the ancient earnest soul as yet unencumbered with these things did for itself. The world, which is now divine only to the gifted, was then divine to whosoever would turn his eye upon it. He stood bare before it face to face. All was godlike or God. Jean-Paul still finds it so. That was a quote from some guy called Jean-Paul. Uh, the giant John Paul, who has power to escape out of hearsays. I don't know who that John Paul is. But there then was no hearsays. Canopus shining, Canopus, shining down over the desert with its blue diamond brightness, that wild blue spirit-like brightness, far brighter than we ever witnessed here, would pierce into the heart of the wild he has another very 19th century word here, Ismailitish, is Ismailitish man, meaning a, like a Muslim, an Islamic person, uh, wh whom it was guiding through the solitary waste there to his wild heart with all feelings in it, with no speech for any feeling. It might seem a little eye that canopus wonder what that is glancing out on him from the great deep eternity revealing the inner splendor to him cannot we understand how these men worshipped canopus hmm. because what we call sabians worshipping became what we call sabians worshipping the stars such is to me the secret of all forms of paganism worship is transcendent wonder Nice. Wonder for which there is now no limit or measure. That is worship. Wonder. Aristotle said that all philosophy begins with wonder. To these primeval men, all things and uh, everything, um, they saw... Uh, that was my own input that wasn't in the <laughs> in the essay um, to these primeval man men all things and everything they saw exist beside them were an emblem of the godlike of some god and look what perennial fiber of truth was in that to us also through every star through every blade of grass is not a god made visible if we if we will open our minds and eyes, we do not worship in that way now, but it is not reckoned still a merit proof of what we call a poetic nature. I'm just, uh, there's a thought coming to mind here. He's knocking at my mind. He's saying, hey, <laughs> I want to um, be addressed. Um just when he's saying there, every blade of grass and all that kind of stuff. I read somewhere before that um, in the Quran, some person kind of approaches uh, Muhammad and he says, oh, if you're, you know, a man of God or something, show me a miracle. And I think um, Muhammad picked up an, an apple on his hand and he said, there you are. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's it is pretty miraculous, isn't it? It's just that he was sensitive enough to it to appreciate it because the person who asked that question was blinded by the veil of familiarity. Mm, this word, this phrase is 
this phrase. I mean, for example, what did I say there? Coleridge died in 1834. And this phrase that I'm saying, see how still vital it is. That's, you know, I mean, I don't know what you think of this essay or this lecture so far, but it's pretty... Uh, um, yeah, it's a real big fleshing out now so far of that theme of the veil of familiarity. Um, and I'm just saying, like, that's still so relevant. We can all the time try to unveil that that familiarity from ourselves to reinvigorate our uh, view of everything. So, yeah, even though this essay is now, like, what, mm, 180 years old, roughly, 183 years old um it's still pretty pretty good like in in his day he's kind of like uh um oh never mind yeah i'll just continue um so he's talking about worshiping um and look what perennial fiber of truth was in that oh i read that already didn't i um did i where was i but now, if all things whatsoever that we look upon are emblems, okay, um, we do not worship in that way. He that can discern the loveliness of things, we call him a poet. Ah, oh yes, so it was that paragraph. And look, what perennial fiber of truth was in that? To us also, through every star, through every blade of grass, is not a God made visible. Oh yeah, and then I got into the Muhammad quote with the uh, story with the apple. If we will open our minds and eyes, we do not worship in that way now. And again, I'm just thinking of someone like Da Vinci. He was like that. He kind of looked at everything and tried to study it and tried to understand it. He was looking at things in a completely childlike way, but with the sense of an adult. I think Da Vinci is another example of the kind of guy that he's uh, Carlisle is praising here. We do not worship in that way now, but it is not reckoned still a merit proof of what we call it. We do not worship in that way now, but it is not reckoned still a merit proof of what we call a poetic nature, that we recognize how every object has a divine beauty in it, how every object still verily is a window through which we may look into infinitude itself. He, that was a quote from somewhere, he that can discern the loveliness of things, we call him poet, painter, man of genius, gifted, lovable. They're all the names for the person who brings these things to us. Um, these poor Sabians did not even... Did, did even what he does in their own fashion. That they that they did it in what fashion soever was a merit. <clears throat> Not really sure who these Sabians are he's talking about. He mentioned something about uh, what, something they knew, he had something, some knowledge about the stars or something. Um, better than what the entirely stupid man did, what the horse and camel did, namely nothing. But now, if all things whatsoever that we look upon are emblems to us of the highest God, I am, let me finish the sentence. I add that there, that more so than any of them is man such an emblem, an emblem, like a symbol of something. Um... I was pausing there because I was just thinking of like 
um, the the Romanesco broccoli. I mean, I don't remember what age I was when I first saw that thing, but um, I uh, yeah, the Romanesco broccoli. If you don't know what that is, look it up, and I mean, that is the most. I mean, it's it's fractals. That's what it is. It's fractals is a type of uh, self replicating sequence. Um, <laughs> uh, I was in work a few years ago, and there was a yeah, there was some uh, Romanesco um, um, broccoli's there, and uh, I think someone was saying maybe someone in there was an atheist or something, and I uh, picked up. Uh, Romanesco broccoli and I was like um are you serious <laughs> it's like uh I'll find a, a good description but um I've been thinking about this recently again but um it's like the most blatant it's like let's say God or, or the life force or whatever I mean if you're an atheist you're not going to think of anything like that but this is my point how can you not wonder <laughs> about just that vegetable it's like it's it's like mathematical it's like what the hell um yeah i'm i've been thinking about this lately and i'll probably um yeah i'll continue my reflections on that and then present them i'll develop them as what i'm trying to say here and then i'll uh, i'll i'll present it sometime but uh yeah that there's that uh, that vegetable for me is <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm going to be, uh, reflecting on that some more. Okay. I'll get back to it. Um, I mean, it's pretty miraculous. <laughs> All right. Um, where was I? Okay. So, but now if all things whatsoever that we look upon are emblems to us of the highest God, I add that more so than any of them is man such an emblem. We are pretty ridiculously amazing. Yeah, like, it's just, ins like, it's just insane. <laughs> it, well, not insane. It's perfectly sane. Um, it's just mind-blowing how complex we are. And yet, and yet we don't need to know the first thing about it for all of it to work. You know, it's crazy. Um... You have heard of Saint Chrysostomus, celebrated Saint Chrysostomus's celebrated saying in reference to the Shekinah, whoever that is, or Ark of Testimony, visible revelation of God among the Hebrews. The true Shekinah is man. I don't know what Shekinah is there. Yes, it is even so. This is no vain phrase. It is veritably so. I don't know what Shakina is there. The essence of our being, the mystery in us that calls itself I. Ah, what words have we for such things is a breath of heaven. The highest being, the highest being reveals himself in man. This body, these faculties, this life of ours, is it not all as a vesture for the unnamed? 
In a quote, there is but one temple in the universe, says the devout Novalis, and that is the body of man. Nothing is holier. Shall that high nothing is holier shall that high form. Hmm? Nothing is holier. I think it must be a typo than that high form. Um, bending before men is a reverence done to this revelation in the flesh. Bending before men is a reverence done to this revelation in the flesh. Revelation in the flesh. We touch heaven when we lay our hand on a human body. I mean, it's... I think, you know, I think as a culture, <laughs> we don't um, tend to allow ourselves to think about this kind of stuff enough. And if you do, you probably go into kind of like a, um, like a subculture, you're like a, like a hippie or something, or you're kind of, uh, um, but I think in general, we don't tend to think about the miraculous nature of literally everything. Um... And I suppose maybe in, um, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll continue. He's doing it here. Um, where was I? The miraculous nature of everything. Nothing is holier than that high form. Bending before men is a reverence done to this revelation in the flesh. We touch heaven when we lay our hand on a human body. This sounds much like a mere flourish of rhetoric, but it is not so. If we meditated, it will turn out to be a scientific fact. The expression in such words as can be had of the actual truth of a thing. We are the miracle of miracles. The great inscrutable mystery of God. Well, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was made flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word... This uh, translation, I probably said this in some other episode as well, but... Um, mm, in the beginning was the Word. This is from the Bible. Um I think um, this word, when I'm saying the word word, it's actually coming from the Greek logos. And I think that means word, but also, I think, like an immaterial consciousness. I think maybe I'm adding that in there now, but it means something more than just word. Um, so in the beginning was immaterial consciousness and the immaterial consciousness was with God. And then the immaterial consciousness was made flesh, was made into man. Mm. Um, okay, just came to my mind there again. I probably said that in at least one or two episodes. Anyway, it's here again. We cannot understand it. We know not how to speak of it. But we may feel and know, if we like, that it is verily so. 
Well, these truths were once more readily felt than now, the young generations of the world who had in them the freshness of young children and yet the depth of earnest men who did not think that they had finished off all things in heaven and earth by merely giving them scientific excuse me by <laughs> scientific names um i think uh i think uh, the poet william blake he had a similar kind of a critique of the scientific view as deadening everything um i mean hmm yeah interesting anyway um the young generations of the world blah 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 Mm, where's the full stop gone the young generations of the world who had in them the freshness of young children and yet the depths of earnest men who did not think that they had finished off all things in heaven and earth by merely giving them scientific names but had to gaze direct at them there with awe and wonder they felt better they felt better what a divinity is in man and nature they, without being mad, could worship nature and man more than anything else in nature. I'm just trying to imagine like some kind of so-called primitive person and with no scientific understandings of how anything works. What must they have thought Everything must have just been hmm, something to something to dwell on. Um, could worship nature, worship that is, as I said above, admire, admire without limit. This, in the full use of their faculties, with all sincerity of heart, they could do. I consider hero worship to be the grand modifying element in that ancient system of thought. What I called the perplexed jungle of paganism sprang, we may say, out of many roots. Every admiration, adoration of a star or natural object was a root or fibre of a root. But hero worship is the deepest root of all, the tap root from which in a general, in a great degree, all the rest were nourished and grown. Um, let me just see how long I've been doing here. Oh, that's an hour already. Um, let me just have a quick flick here. It's, it's 30 pages long, this first lecture. Wow, yeah, it's long. So, all right, I'll try to do like five more pages and then might leave it there because otherwise it'll be like two hours. Um, and now, if worship, even of a star, had some meaning in it, how much more might that of a hero? Worship of a hero is transcendent admiration of a great man. I say great men are still admirable. I say there is, at bottom, nothing else admirable. No nobler feeling than this of admiration for one higher than himself dwells in the breast of man. It's like all aspiration, isn't it? It is the people we look up to, we aspire to be like, or to outdo even. It is to this hour and at all hours, the vivifying influence of man's life, 
Religion, I find, stand upon it. Not paganism only, but far higher and truer religions, all religion hither, hitherto known. Hero worship, heartfelt, prostrate admiration, submission, burning, boundless, for a noblest godlike form of man. Is not that the germ of Christianity itself? The greatest of all heroes is one whom we do not name here. Let sacred silence meditate that sacred matter. You will find it in the ultimate perfection of a principle exant, extant, meaning existing, throughout man's whole history on earth. Our coming into lower, less unspeakable provinces is not all loyalty akin to religious faith also. That was a question, whoops. Our or coming into lower, less unspeakable provinces, is not all loyalty akin to religious faith also? Faith is loyalty to some inspired teacher, some spiritual hero. And what therefore is loyalty proper to, uh, <laughs> what and what therefore is loyalty proper, the life breath of all society, but but an effluence of hero worship, submissive admiration for the truly great. Society is founded on hero worship. All dignitaries, all dignities of rank on which human association rests are what we may call a hierarchy, <laughs> government of heroes, or a hierarchy, for it is sacred enough with all. Very, I don't think anyone says that kind of phrase now at the end of sentences with all. Um, the duke means dux, D-U-X, leader. The duke means dux, leader, king. Oh yeah, here we are. Nice etymology of king. King is conning, canning. Man that knows or cans. Like the word uh, king comes from the kind of uh, Germanic for to be able, to be able to do something, because in those societies, the king was the most able, most competent person to get things done. <laughs> so the, the word king comes from the verb uh, to can or to be able. Um, yep, um, king. King is cooning. Canning, man that knows or can. Society everywhere is some representation, not insupportably inaccurate, of a graduated worship of heroes, reverence and obedience done to men really great and wise. Guess it is, isn't it? Not... <clears throat> Get a drink. <coughs> Excuse me. Hmm. Not insupportably inaccurate, I say. Yeah, I agree. They are all as banknotes, these social dignitaries, all representing gold. And several of them, alas, always are forged notes. We can do with some forged wait we can do with some forged false notes with a good many even but not with all or the most of them forged no there have to come revolutions then 
cries of democracy, liberty and equality, and I know not what, the notes being all false and no gold to be had for them, people take to crying in their despair that there is no gold, that there never was any. That's a nice little metaphor he has um, kind of uh, used like he was saying, men love truth, humans love truth, they live by truth. And uh, and if in our society the truth is uh, becoming less and less and there's too much forged fake currency going around and there's no actual real currency going around, then people start to freak out. Um, gold. Hero worship is nevertheless as it was always and everywhere and cannot cease till man himself ceases. I am well aware that in these days hero worship, the thing I call hero worship, professes to have gone out and finally ceased. Ooh, This, for reasons which it will be worthwhile some time to inquire into, is an age that as it were denies the existence of great men, denies the desirableness of great men. Show our critics a great man, a Luther, for example, they begin to what they call account for him, not to worship him, but take the dimensions of him and bring him out to be a little kind of man. He was the creature of the time, they say, the time called him forth, the time did everything, he nothing. But what we, the little critic, uh, he did nothing. But what we, the little critic, could have done too. But what, oh yeah, but what we, the little critic, could have done too. This seems to me but melanc melancholy work. The time call forth. Alas, we have known times call loudly enough for their great man, but not find him when they called. He was not there. Providence had not sent him, as the Tibetans believed, as he mentioned earlier on. The time, calling its loudest, had to go down to confusion and wreck because he would not come when called. So yeah, there's a critique of... Um, like he said it in his intro, that history or the world um, is often kind of like goes in one direction or a society goes in one direction or something because of a particular person who did something or was a major influence in some way. And other people then say, oh, no, it wasn't really that 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 person was so amazing. It was just kind of all the right circumstances came together and like... Uh, um, yeah, it just kind of happened like that. It was not that that person was so brilliant. It was just kind of, kind of a coincidence that all those things came together. Mm. I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. Um, where was I? Yeah. Uh, for if we will think of it, no time need have gone to ruin. Could it have found a, a man great enough, a man wise and good enough wisdom to discern? I'm just thinking like, um, yeah, it's very like uh, hmm, that kind of view that like, oh, it was just the times, the right, all these circumstances came together that 
produce this person. Uh, it it almost kind of um, it's kind of a fatalistic view, like you know fate or something. It's like a it's kind of um, belittling um, free will. You know, it's I'm more into the kind of more free will. I totally do believe in free will. Um, um, yeah, anyway, um, I think we are completely free to do whatever in every second, you know, we just have to, we have this, yeah, we have beliefs in goodness and we got to go with that or not. Uh, anyway, um, where was I? For if we will think of it, no time need have gone to ruin. Could it have found a great, a man great enough, a man wise and good enough, wisdom to discern truly what the time wanted, valor to lead it on, the right road thither, thither. <laughs> These are the salvation of any time, but I liken common languid times with their unbelief, distress, perplexity, with their languid doubting characters and embarrassed circumstances, impotently crumbling down into ever worse distress towards final ruin. Because they didn't believe in themselves, maybe. They didn't believe in the power of maybe an individual, like Emerson in his uh, Self-Reliance essays. Um, uh and this I liken to dry, dead fuel, waiting for the lightning out of heaven that shall kindle it. The great man, with his free force direct out of God's own hand, is the lightning. Nice. His word is the wise healing word which all can believe in. All blazes around him now, when he was once struck on it into fire like his own. The dry, mouldering sticks are thought to have called him forth. They did not want him greatly, but as to calling him forth. Those are critics of small vision, I think, who cry, See, it is not the sticks that made the fire. See, is it not the sticks that made the fire? No, no sadder proof can be given by a man of his own little, littleness than disbelief in great men. That's a good sentence right there. No sadder proof can be given by a man of his own littleness than his disbelief in great people. Believe and you can achieve. If you don't envision, you'll stay in the same position. <laughs> Just made up that little one there now. Um, mm, there is no sadder symptom of a generation. Yeah, that's the right one. Yeah. There is no sadder symptom of a generation than such general blindness to the spiritual lightning with faith only in the heap of barren dead fuel. It is the last consummation of unbelief. In all epochs of the world's history, we shall find 
the great man to have been the indispensable savior of his epoch. Just interesting what he said at the start of uh, the, the Tibetans believe that there is this incarnation of like a, mm, the word he used was himself, but uh, some kind of like, uh, well, I can't find the right word right now for that, but um, an incarnation of something that is akin or something that is essentially like what the Dalai Lama is said to be, or like a, like a Christ coming down to the world in every generation. <laughs> um, it is the last consummation of unbelief. In all epochs of the world's history, we shall find the great man to have been the indispensable savior of his epoch, the lightning without which the fuel never would have burnt. The history of the world, I said already, was the biography of great men. Yeah, I don't know about you, but isn't this a very cool essay? It's a very cool essay. Um, I'll do a few more pages. I mean, it's really, really good. I, I nearly keep on going. He hasn't said too much now about the Scandinavians, but I mean, I like what he's saying. But he hasn't gotten into the, I see on the next pages, I see a few Scandinavian mythological names and stuff. So it's getting there. Um, Such small critics do what they can to promote unbelief and universal spiritual paralysis. But happily, they cannot always completely succeed. In all times, it is possible for a man to arise great enough to feel that they and their doctrines are chimeras and cobwebs and what is notable in no time whatever can they and what is notable in no time whatever can they entirely eradicate out of living men's hearts a certain altogether peculiar reverence for great men genuine admiration loyalty adoration however dim and perverted it may be hero worship endures forever while man endures i think so boswell venerates his johnson right truly even in the 18th century the unbelieving french believe in their voltaire and burst out round him into very curious hero worship in that last act of his life when they uh, stifle him under roses it has always seemed to me extremely curious, this of Voltaire. Truly, if Christianity be the highest instance of hero worship, then we may find here in Voltairianism um, one of the lowest. Eh? He whose life was that of a kind of antichrist does again on this side exhibit a curious contrast. No people ever were so little prone to admire at all as those French of Voltaire. No people ever were so little prone to admire at all as those French of Voltaire. Um, Persiflage was the character of their whole mind. Adoration had nowhere a place in it. Okay, so he's saying, I don't know, I haven't read Voltaire actually ever, even though I have one of his books, but not here. Um, yeah, I never, I never got around to it. <clears throat> so he's saying, I don't know. Voltaire is quite the anti, uh, seemingly not, uh, yeah, quite um, opposite of what he's saying here. 
yet um, see the old man of Fernie comes up to Paris, an old, tottering, infirm man of 84 years. They feel that he too is a kind of hero, that he, maybe this is Voltaire he's talking about, that he has spent his life in opposing error and injustice, delivering calasses, don't know what that is, unmasking hypocrites in high places. In short, that he too, though in a strange way, has has fought like a valiant man. They feel withal that... If persiflage be the great thing, there never was such a persiflure. <laughs> he is the realized, like a, he verbified his name, is that it? He is the realized ideal of every one of them. The thing they are all wanting to be, of all Frenchmen, the most French he is properly their God, such God as they are fit for. Hmm. Accordingly, all persons from the Queen Antoinette to Douanier at the Porte de Saint-Denis, do they not worship him? People of quality disguise themselves as tavern waiters. People of quality disguise themselves as tavern waiters. The maître de poste, with a broad oath, orders his... Uh, Postillon, va bon train, mm. go good train, thou art driving Madame Voltaire. Ah, yeah, okay. At Paris, his carriage is the nucleus of a comet whose train fills whole streets. The ladies pluck a hair or two from his fur to keep it as a sacred relic. There was nothing highest, beautifulest, noblest in all France that did not feel this man to be higher, beautifuler, nobler. Okay, so Voltaire. Um, yes. From Norse Odin to English Samuel Johnson, from the divine founder of Christianity to the withered pontiff, pontiff of encyclopedism, in all times and places the hero has been worshipped. It will ever be so. We all love great men, love, venerate and bow down submissive before great men. Nay, can we honestly bow down to anything else? Ah, does not every true man feel that he is himself made higher by doing reverence to what is really above him? No nobler or more blessed feeling dwells in man's heart, and to me it is very cheering to consider that no sceptical logic or general triviality, insincerity or, or, or <laughs> insincer insincerity and aridity of any time and its influences can destroy this noble inborn loyalty and worship that is in man. In times of unbelief, which soon have to become times of revolution, much downrushing, sorrowful decay and ruin is visible to everybody. For myself, in these days, I seem to see in this indestructibility of hero worship the everlasting adamant lower than which the confused wreck of revolutionary things cannot fall.
The confused wreck of things crumbling and even crashing and tumbling all round us in these revolutionary ages will get down so far, no farther. It is an eternal cornerstone from which they can begin to build themselves up again. That man, in some sense or other, worships heroes. That we all of us reverence and must ever reverence great men. This is, to me, the living rock amid all rushing down rushings down whatsoever the one fixed point in modern revolutionary history otherwise as if bottomless and shoreless i'll just maybe finish the next page so much of truth only under an ancient obsolete vesture but the spirit of it still true do i find in the paganism of old nations nature is still divine the revelation of the workings of god the hero is still worshipable this under poor cramped incipient forms is what all pagan religions have struggled as they could to set forth i think scandinavian paganism to us here is more interesting than any other it is for one thing the latest it continued in these regions of europe till the 11th century 800 years ago uh, the Norwegians were still worshippers of Odin. It is interesting also as the creed of our fathers, the men whose blood still runs in our veins, whom doubtless we still resemble in so many ways. Strange they did believe that, while we believe so differently. Let us look at let us look a little at this poor Norse creed for many reasons. We have tolerable means to do it. For there is another point of interest in these Scandinavian mythologies that they have been preserved so well. In that strange island Iceland, burst up, the geologists say, by fire from the bottom of the sea, a wild land of barrenness and lava, swallowed by many months of every year in black temp uh, tempests, yet with a wild gleaming beauty in summertime, towering up there, stern and grim, in the North Ocean with its snow uh, jokels, roaring geysers, sulphur pools, and horrid volcano chasms like the waste chaotic battlefield of frost and fire, where of all places we least looked for literature or written memorials. The record of these things was written down. On the seaboard of this wild land is a rim of grassy country where cattle can subsist and men by means of them and of what the sea yields, and it seems they were poetic men, these men who had deep thoughts in them, and uttered musically their thoughts. Much would be lost had Iceland not been burst up from the sea, not been discovered by the Northmen. The old Norse poets were many of them natives of Iceland. Seymund, one of the early Christian priests there, who perhaps had a lingering fondness for paganism, hmm. um, collected certain of their old pagan songs. Yeah, so eventually Iceland was Christianized and it was when they were Christianized that I think manuscript like paper, because I don't think they didn't have uh, manuscript. Uh, manuscript is what you call early forms of of paper like a sheet of paper paper is made from wood manuscript is made from the hide of an animal um so it, it was with uh when christianity came to came to iceland then manuscripts culture came 
So then when it came, the priests, some, sometimes they wrote down the old stories from before um, Christianity to preserve the stories. But often they kind of rewrote them. It's believed that sometimes they rewrote them to kind of, um, they kind of like threaded through Christian themes through the old Norse stories a little bit. It's believed. Um, Samond, one of the early Christian priests there, who perhaps had a lingering fondness for paganism, collected certain of their old pagan songs, just about becoming obsolete then. Poems are chants of a mystic, uh, of a mythic, prophetic, mostly all of a religious character. That is what Norse critics call the elder or poetic Edda. I have those. Edda, never got around to them yet. Edda, uh, much, um, Edda, a word of uncertain etymology, is thought to signify ancestress. Snorro Sturlson, an Icelandic, an Iceland gentleman, an extremely notable personage, educated by this Seymund, Seymund's grandson, took in hand next, near a century afterwards, to put together, among several other books he wrote, a kind of prose synopsis of the whole mythology, elucidated by new fragments of tradition, uh, traditionary verse, a work constructed really with great ingenuity, native talent, what one might call unconscious art. Altogether a uh, perspicuous, clear work. Pleasant reading still. This is the younger or prose Edda by these and numerous other sagas, mostly Icelandic, with the commentaries, Icelandic or not, which go on zealously in the north of the, in the north to this day. Is it is possible to gain some direct insight even yet, and see that old Norse system of belief, as it were, face to face. Let us forget that it is erroneous. Let us forget that it is erroneous religion. Let us look at it as old thought and try if we cannot sympathize with it somewhat. I think now he's just about to finally get into the Scandinavian stuff, but um, I've gone on an hour and 25 minutes the primary characteristic of this old Northland mythology I find to be impersonations of the visible workings of nature. Earnest, simple recognition of the workings of physical nature as a thing wholly miraculous, stupendous and divine. What we now lecture of as scientific, they wondered at and fell down in awe before it, as religion, the dark, hostile powers of nature, they figure to themselves as Jotuns, giants, huge, shaggy beings of a demonic character. Mm. Uh, frost, fire, sea tempest, these are Jotuns. The friendly powers, again, as summer heat, the sun, are gods. So the bad forces like frost and wind, they're all called Jotuns, and then the good ones then are gods. The empire of this universe is divided between these two. They dwell apart in perennial internecine feud. So the gods, Jotuns and gods fight each other. 
the gods dwell above in Asgard, the garden of the Asen, or divinities. Jotunheim, a distant, dark, chaotic land, is the home of the Jotuns. Curious all this, and not idle or inane, if we will look at the foundation of it, the power of fire or flame, for instance, which we designate by some trivial chemical name, thereby hiding from ourselves the essential character of wonder that dwells in it as in all things, is with these old Norsemen, Northmen Loki, a most swift, subtle demon of the brood of the Jotuns. The savages of the Ladrones Islands, too, say some Spanish voyagers, thought fire, which they never had seen before, was a devil or god that bit you sharply when you touched it, <laughs> and that lived upon <laughs> that lived upon dry wood. From us, too, no chemistry, if it had not stupidity to help it, would hide that flame is a wonder. What is flame? Frost, the old Norse seer, discerns to be a monstrous, hoary Jotun. The, the giant Thrym, Hrym and Rhyme, <laughs> and Rhyme, the old word now nearly obsolete here, but still used in Scotland to signify hoary frost. Rhyme was not then as now a dead chemical thing, but a living Jotun or devil. The monstrous Jotun rhyme drove home his horses at night, sat combing their manes, which horses were hail clouds, and f or fleet frost winds. His cows, no, not his, but a kinsman, the giant Himir, cows as icebergs. This Himir looks at the rocks with his devil eye and they split in the they and they split in the glance of it. Yeah, he's really getting into it all now, but but there's still like fifteen pages left, pretty sure. Um holy crap. Let me put the phone down for a second. Twenty eight pages, yeah. So there's yeah, there's like 14 pages left. <clears throat> An hour and... I think I think I will do part two. I think I will do part two. Because it's pretty... It's pretty cool stuff. But I won't make this whole episode like... Like it'll... Like three hours long. <laughs> I think that might be off-putting. An hour and a half is pretty long as well, but it's more manageable. Um, you'll feel... Yeah. I'll leave it at that. So yeah, he's really about to get into it all now. Um, and I'm kind of looking forward to to getting into that now as well. But I'll leave it at that now just because, yeah, I don't want this to be like an oppressively long looking <laughs> a podcast. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. So um, let me think. Shall I try recap? Um Really, really, it was, it, yeah, like he said, it was like Plato's analogy of, of a man who lived all his life in a cave and then he comes up, I think that was the analogy of the cave he was referring to, um, um, 
but yeah, it's re- so far this whole that, that whole hour and a half there was him basically building up to getting into the actual Norse, and I've just started to get into it now. But um, yeah, as I'm the main kind of point for me that's standing out is this film of familiarity has to be removed and like scientific understanding is kind of like yeah is mm, is uh, is overpowering wonder to a certain extent we kind of take things for granted now um maybe um anyway i shall leave it at that i'm looking forward to doing part two now because as i said um yeah, it was like wintertime one year, about nine years ago when I was living at home in Ireland. And um, yeah, I was absolutely loving the Vikings series. Absolutely loved that. Um, and then I read this and actually I bought another book as well. I have another book. It was like a, I think it was the book that was used in Scandinavian countries for um, learning about the mythology. It was like, I can't remember now who wrote it or even where, where it is or even if I have it here in Belgium but um I got that around that time as well so um yeah it's winter time um I uh I'm digging these uh the Scandinavian mythology around this time of year (laughs) um all right I'm gonna leave it at that so I hope um if you listened along if you listened this far hope you enjoyed it I really did. Um, I got more into the flow of reading it as I went along there. Um, so, yeah. Um, I'm just thinking like, um, yeah, podcasts. I think I said this before, but like podcasts are just, you know, if you're going for a run or something, sure, that's good for your body. And after your run, you'll you'll have all those. Is it endorphins? Um you know, the way you just feel great after a, a run, kind of like a few hours after it or slowly after you stop running. I notice it like throughout the day, you just kind of feel better and better and better, like more kind of like, uh, like, uh, yeah, motivated and everything. It's an amazing thing. But all I'm saying is anytime I go running, I'm always listening to some podcast about something or, you know, when I cook, I'm always listening to something. So, So it's just a great way of, you know, of essentially like reading a book, like you're going for a run, but you're actually reading a book as well. So this is why podcasts are just brilliant. So, um, so yeah, um, I love doing this. I would really love to get, uh, feedback if you liked anything or have feedback about anything good or bad, preferably good, (laughs) um, (laughs) Uh, let me know on, I, I usually, I just use, um, Instagram now. Um, yeah, I'm not really doing much on the Facebook, but, um, so yeah, if you're listening to this, um, and if you liked anything like comment or share the, on the podcast, um, that would be really, really, really appreciated. Cause right now, yeah, I'd love to get some kind of feedback on the page. Um, and yeah, if anyone is liking this, if you could share it on your social media, because just trying to get the whole podcasting out there 
to people who might be interested is like the stage I'm at now. Um, so yeah, it would be a big help, your feedback or even liking it or sharing it. Um, and, and yeah, um, I'm going to keep on doing this. Um, still really enjoying it. I have loads of ideas for so many episodes. Um, loads of things I want to share uh, that I think are that I think are worth discovering while you're going for a run or on your commute to work or whatever it is. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. And then ultimately if, uh, if, if you were able to, uh, um, like become a Patreon for like, even, you know, if you want to do it like just one month or something like a, the, the price of a beer or a coffee, one, even just, you know, you know, do it once and then cancel it or whatever, that would be like so amazing. Uh, I'm still doing this whole thing with just my phone. If it catches on and like people are actually, you know, liking it or yeah, following more so the episodes and stuff like that, then I would invest in something like a proper microphone. Um, that would be nice. Um, I'd be able to develop it in that kind of way. Um, but then also, once again, like, yeah, I am an artist. I study painting in college. Um, it's so fucking difficult <laughs> to make uh, a living out of being an artist so um any kind of patreon support would be great f help also um yeah i am currently trying to get poems published um so yeah i hope that goes somewhere as well um so yeah um, if you'd like to help out an artist, if you think what I'm doing is <laughs> worth listening to, then, um, yeah, mm, say hi on the page or whatever. And yeah, if you could s help, uh, yeah, with the Patreon, even just once or whatever, that would be very cool. Uh, but, but really mo right now it's like, if you liked it, if you could share it so other people can see it, cause just getting it out there is like the main thing right now. Uh, it's growing, but slowly. Um, so yeah. Getting it out there is the main thing. Okay, I'm going to stop now and um, hope you like that. And I'm quite looking forward now to getting into the the Scandinavian mythology. He's really getting into it here now. I see all the names on the next few pages. So that's going to be cool. So I'm going to record that pretty soon. Maybe even tomorrow. We'll see. Um, all right. I hope that was good. Thanks for listening. If you did, if you did, um, yeah. That's a good thing for me. <laughs> all right. Okay, I'm going to leave it at that now talk next time and yeah if you like it please do join on the on the instagram it's just under oral otium and likewise the patreon is just under oral otium so uh yeah say hi like comment and share <laughs> okay until the next uh till part two <laughs>